0: Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's holiday. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here and my heart is about to leap out of my chest. I'm not kidding, the game started about three minutes ago. No, probably about a minute ago, uh, unless it got delayed. But 12.08 was the start and I'm flipping out because I'm super excited the cup is today. Oh my goodness, it's the Sounders in Toronto and I'm heading there like almost immediately. Um, so I'm, I'm super excited. So like, just for a little bit of context, I'm one of the chaplains for the Sounders. So I get to hang out with them all year long. I don't do chapel on Sundays for them because I'm here, which is great. Uh, so uh, Tim, who is the uh, other chaplain, is with them today. And I just I can't wait to get down there. OK, anyhow. Let me pray for us and pray for me so that I can calm down just a little bit. I had a hard time getting to sleep last night. I'm not kidding. Okay, let me pray. God, thank you so much for gathering us here today in this space at this time uh, that we may focus our thoughts and our attention on you and you alone. Father, as we dive into your word, as we look at the way in which the world works around us and as we attempt to figure out what our place is in that and how we can intersect and make it better, how we can be a people that bring your kingdom here, that that are representatives of your kingdom here in this place at this time, Father, may we be challenged, may our minds be changed, but more than that, may our hearts be softened and molded around you and your ways. So, Father, as we look at your word today, may you gather us in a space of of hope and of promise for what can be and what is to come. So, Father, it's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Do you have enough? Do you have enough? This is one of the questions that I constantly find myself asking Elliot, Right? She's seven years old, and I'll sit her down for dinner, and I'll, I'll give her the huge. And as she sits there and she eats, I'm like, do you have enough? Do you need any more? What else do you need? Like, do you have enough? Her answer is typically, yeah, I'm fine. Unless it's something like candy, or cookies, or sugar, or sweeties. Then she's like, no, I need more. I need more, and can I please have more candy? Can I have more of this, more of that? And she continues to want to grab and pull and and, and surround herself with all of these sweeties. More, 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 more. That's one of the hardest parts about parenting is teaching your child the difference between want and need. Do you really need that extra cookie? Do you really need that extra piece of candy? Yes, I do. Really? Or is that just a want? And trying to parse the difference between the two words is super difficult. It's really hard to play with and figure out. But I think the reason why it's so hard for us to, to differentiate the, between a want and a need is because of the great American myth. This great American myth that says, He who dies with the most toys wins. I remember that on t-shirts. Kids would walk around the halls with these sorts of things that that simply said, like, he who dies with the most toys wins. And then there was a Christian subculture that said, oh, wait, no, 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 we've got a better one. He who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) Right? Like, these were the t-shirts. But this is the great American myth, that, that more, more, more is better, better, better. That, in the words of Gordon Gecko from the 1980s movie Wall Street, no, nobody, greed is good. Greed is good. This is the great American myth. This is the ethos by which we have been enculturated, by which we have been discipled, by which we have been formed as a people, that more is good. And we tell ourselves to mitigate this myth, to mitigate the the fact that that greed is all that we seem to know, we tell ourselves this, this other equally dangerous myth, that we are the most generous country in the world. That we're the most generous people in the world, over and over, everywhere we go, we hear this sort of myth. Oh, we are so generous. We give so much in foreign aid. We give so much to our neighbors. We give so much from the excess and the overflow of who we have. We give, we give, we give, and we tell ourselves that we are the most generous. But did you know that out of the G7? The G7 is like the the seven largest global superpowers, economic superpowers in the world. Out of the G7, we give the seventh most. But not only that, out of the G12, the 12 largest economic superpowers, we give the 12th most. And of the 27 largest economic superpowers in the world, the largest economies of the developed world, we rank 27 out of 27 in foreign aid, despite us having the largest economy in the world. In fact, we don't just give a little. We give pennies. We give one-tenth of one percent of our GDP in foreign aid to the world. And yet we're the most generous country in the world. But generosity is not just a challenge for us as a country, like on a, on a global budget scale, but it's actually a challenge for us as individuals. That generosity actually really isn't our thing. That according to the, uh, the center, uh, the... the uh, What's the next one, Taylor? Yeah, the U.S. Bureau of Labor. U.S. Americans spend the same amount of money on clothing as they do on charitable giving. Over the course of a year, the amount of money that you spend on clothing doesn't even match the amount of money that you spend in charitable giving, that we spend in charitable giving. It's just not our thing because we're a pretty greedy lot. We're a greedy lot, we're a greedy people. We we have been formed and told over and over that this is who we are. That greed is good, that you have to accumulate and create more for yourself so that you can attain the American dream. In fact, it's interesting because I don't know if you know this or not, but but we are titled as consumers, not givers, not generous people. We are known by every statistical formula in our economy as consumers. There's the consumer confidence index, right? Like how confident are we in what we can buy as a people, of what we can have and accumulate and amass for ourselves. We are consumers and Christians are actually no different. Like we can talk about our country being this, this really greedy sort of place, but Christians are actually not that much different. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Christians today give less per capita than they did during the Great Depression. Yikes. Only 3 to 5% of Christians tithe, with most confessing Christians giving 2 to 3% of their income. With most giving only 2 to 3% of their income. Our greed is greater than our desire to give. Our greed is greater than our desire to give. And it's not necessarily our fault. I'm kind of giving us a little bit of an out here. The reason why it's not our phone is because I don't think we've actually been taught much different. Day in and day out, we are inundated with advertising. Day in and day out, we're told buy this, you need this, get this new piece of technology, get this new car, get this new thing you need, you need, you need, you need. And we've been told that a want is actually a need. These are the things that we have been conditioned towards. And so our greed is greater than our desire to give. It makes perfect sense. It really does. in the way in which the world has been created, the way in which capitalistic systems and structures have been formed around us, capitalism's kind of new, just so you know. Any economic majors? It's not been. It's not been the thing for the entirety of the world. Capitalism is, especially 20th century capitalism, is really new. But even the 1800s, 1700s, 1600s, and 1500s, like, they think that it's like the 1200s was when capitalism really started to make itself known. It was kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. 1266 is kind of the date that they're placing on it, and really only in certain parts of the world. And you might say, like, oh, how is that really true? Well, it's because that's all we've known. That's all we've known. We only know capitalism. We don't know any other system or structure because we are inundated with it and surrounded by it. It is the thing that we know. But this is actually not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way in which the kingdom of God is supposed to work. The way in which Jesus thought about how things should go for us. How the world should actually function and play. In fact, Jesus kind of talked about this in Mark chapter 12. Jesus was oftentimes showing us, presenting us a a visual aid, a different way of understanding the world around us. And in Mark chapter 12, he had been teaching in the temple courts. And as he was teaching in the temple courts, he was kind of pointing out the different religious leaders and how they were presenting themselves through the temple. They they would walk with their long flowing robes, allowing the richness and the largesse of their lives to be really present, to be really made known as they carried themselves throughout. Here's what's funny is Jesus took his disciples and said, let's go into the temple and we're going to go sit opposite of the offering box. So the the offering box was typically on the right-hand side of the temple as you walked in, and it was one of the first things that you did as you walked into the temple was you would give your money, and Jesus and the disciples made their way around to the other side, and they sat and they watched. They watched people give, which is kind of interesting to think about, right? Like, Jesus is watching you give, right? You could go that direction, like, oh, that's kind of creepy, right? Jesus is watching you. But he was sitting there with his disciples and watching the people come in with their money. They had all of this money that they were coming in with. And the rich would be like, oh, here we go. And they would, they would make a show of it as they came in. Now, the, the offering box was this wooden box with a little circle hole in the top. And that's how they would give. And you can imagine that as they are walking in and as they are giving their offering, some people would be like, I want to make it sound like, I'm giving a lot of money. And now, they didn't have bills, right? They didn't have bills. What they had was coins. Every amount of money that they had were coins, and they were different shapes, different sizes, different weights. Some were thicker than others, and they would just begin to drop them in. Oh, wait, I've got more. Right? Like, they would just keep giving, and then the next person be, would come and be like, he gave a little bit more than I did. Uh. If I stand here long enough, maybe it sounds or is like I'm giving more money, right? Like, oh, and they just kept going and they just kept giving and giving and giving. And Jesus is standing there watching them give all of this money, all of their tithes and all of their offerings. They would dump it in as they walked by. And then this woman, this, it's called a poor widow, came up to the box and she gave Her two mites. Her two little pennies, basically. In fact, it it was worse than pennies. Like they were, they were, they were copper coins that were like basically shaved in half. And each one was worth about two-fifths of a cent. So two together was 80% of one penny. And she came and she dropped them in and walked on. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he asks them, who do you think gave more? Who do you think of all the people that we have been watching walk by and drop in their money? Who do you think has given the most generously? Who is it? Well, obviously it's the people that, you know, gave all that, right? And Jesus is like, no, it was the woman who gave the two mites because she gave everything that she had. She gave everything that she had. Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. All that she had to live on, she gave it all. Now, what's really fascinating about this woman is, is her title. Not, not only that she's a widow, which means that her husband is no longer with her, but that there was a descriptor word before that, that she was a poor widow, Now, the way in which things worked back in the day was there were three protected people. There was one protected class, but there were three types of people that were kind of protected by the law, by by God's law in the Old Testament. One was immigrants, those that were foreigners and outsiders to, to Israel. They were protected. They were considered to be people that you should take care of, that you should do something well for them. The second was orphans, which an orphan back in the day was really if your father died. If your father died, you were considered an orphan. and I'll tell you why in just a second. And the third one was widows. These were the protected class of the nation of Israel. This was the protected class, the people that were cared for and loved and, and needed to be cared for and loved. And the reason why was because men were the ones that worked they provided economic security into the home. They created, they crafted things. It was a mercantile sort of system of economics where they would craft and create things and then they would either sell or trade or barter. And this is kind of how the world worked around them. And when the husband died, the wife, the widow, was left completely destitute. Unless which was by law the second older brother then married the widow because it was all about taking care of the family. It was all familial in its structure. And if, he, if there was no one there to marry her, then she was left all alone. She was left completely destitute without any way of supporting herself economically. And so here is this woman, a poor woman, a poor woman widow who has nothing left, has nothing around her, no inheritance, no nothing. She lives off of the generosity of strangers. And Jesus says she gave everything. She gave everything that she had to the offering and to the treasury. (laughs) there was a man that i met a few years ago several years ago when we lived in san francisco and his name was michael and michael was a he was a low income man that was really tall and kind of looked like michael jordan which was funny cuz his name was michael like he had the, like the same sort of face bald head kind of thing and really really fit guy. And he he was probably like 6'3", 6'4", so not as tall as Michael, right? But like he's just really tall, really thick kind of dude. And I I remember meeting him the first time and finding out that he lived down the street in a single renter occupancy building, which is basically where like you're you're a step out of homelessness. A single renter occupancy would be the same as like what we do at Tent City uh, down down at um, Safe Harbor, where it's like these tiny villages kind of thing, but it's just one building. You live in a room that has like a small stovetop kind of thing, but no bathroom. And you have like a dorm-style bathroom that everybody shares. This was kind of Michael's existence. This is kind of what he lived in and what he understood. And I remember one Sunday he came and he gave an offering. And I, I remember he had put it in an envelope. We were doing envelope offering types of things. And he, he put his offering in the envelope and he dropped it in the box. And I, I remember finding out later that, that Michael had given basically $2. Right? Not a whole lot. And you're like, oh, that's not very much. But I went and I talked to Michael about it. I was like, hey, like that's pretty amazing that, that you gave. Like that you gave out of like your your situation, where you're at kind of thing. And he was like, he's like, man, it was all that I had. It was all that I had, but I wanted to give. I had to give. I was like, wait, what? Like, why, why did you have to? Like, that seems really difficult. And this was Michael's response to me. He said, man, the things you own, if you hold on to them too tightly, they end up owning you. He said, I had to give because the things, the things that I own, if I hold on to them too tightly, if I'm not willing to let go of them, if I'm not willing to just give it away, whatever I have, even if it's my last two bucks and I don't know where I'm going to get my lunch, if I hold on to that stuff too tightly, that stuff will start to own me and I am tired of being owned. Whoa. Okay. Huh. The things you own... End up owning you. Generosity is more than just a letting go of what it is that we have financially. Generosity is about more than money. Job, chapter 31, Job goes on this long diatribe. He says, If I have denied justice to any of my servants, If I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, if I have seen anyone perishing for a lack of clothing or the needy without a garment and their hearts did not bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I have put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you are my security, these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high." Job looks at generosity vastly different than how we talk about it. That is actually a more encompassing, a more full experience, a full expression of who we are. That generosity is not just about our finances, but it's about everything that we have. It's about all that we have. If you hold on tightly, If you hold on too tightly, the things you own end up owning you. Hemingway said this in his book, The Old Man in the Sea, which is perhaps one of my favorite books of all time. Now is not the time to think of what you do not have. Think of what you can do with what is there. We live in such a culture, and such a system of economics that says you need more, that you can't really give until you attain this sort of thing that is out there somewhere, this American dream that floats out in the ether that we can't quite explain or describe. When I ask Elliot, do you have enough? We oftentimes are asking ourselves the same thing. Do I have enough? No, because I have not attained this thing that is out there. And Hemingway, in the midst of this, challenges us to not think of what it is that we don't have. Don't think of where it is that we have not attained, but think of what you can do with what you do have, with what is there in your very possession, with what is there in your very place. Perhaps one of the most beautiful things within Seattle, and I feel like it's a really unique thing. I could be wrong, I've never seen it anywhere else that I've lived is this little group on Facebook called Buy Nothing, right? It's, a, it's not even a barter economy. It is a pure generosity muscle producing thing, where you'll be like, oh, you know what? I've got this t-shirt, or I've got this plant, or I've got this, or I've got that. I don't need it anymore. I, 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 don't, I don't even want it anymore. Perhaps there's someone else in my neighborhood that could use it. It'd take a picture of it and post it online. We've posted a desk recently and a lamp as we've rearranged our bedroom. We're like, oh, we don't need this desk in here anymore. We don't need this lamp anymore. Let's see if there's other people in our neighborhood that could use it. Those blue Ikea bags as you go and buy stuff. Like, I go down there to buy stuff for the church all the time and always, always, always forget to bring bags so I'm like, crap, I'll buy the $3 blue bag. So we had like four of them, and I was like, anybody need these? I'm like, oh, totally, I use that for grocery shopping. Really? Oh, huh. okay, great. Right? And so we're giving them away. But we've also received, we've also received things. Tracy has decided that she wants to turn our apartment into a jungle. Right? She, wants to, she, wants to, she wants to create like this plant utopia in our entire apartment. And so she went and got a clipping from someone. And they not only got a clipping of this vine sort of plant, but they they put it in a pot and they planted it for her. Right? Like this really beautiful act of generosity, like here, here. And then Elliot decided we should get her a succulent for her birthday. Like, right? So, like, our house is going green, like with plants and things everywhere. Not really, it's just one thing. It's just one thing. but all because of this group of people who have said, we want to give and be this place of generosity. There are people within our community that have received baby clothes and baby toys and baby things as we have been inundated with babies lately, right? Like like this way of gathering things that, that are necessary and that are needed out of the generosity of our neighborhood. Now is not the time to think of what you do not have. Think of what you can do with what is there. What is sitting in your place? What is sitting in your apartment? What is sitting in your room that you're like, you know what? I don't use this. I don't need this. I can give this to someone. I can begin to practice the muscle of generosity here in this place and in this space. We started to think the other day about generosity in a different way within our apartment, Right, like I, I don't know if this is true for you, but it's true for us. Our apartment, our, our the, the condo that we rent, is the most expensive thing in our budget. Right, eating up the majority of like our our like there's nothing that we spend more money on than our apartment. Right, just for rent because Seattle's expensive. Right. So how do we leverage that? How do we use that? If we've got this thing, how do we we leverage that well for generosity and for space, for hospitality, for others? And so Tracy and I were talking the other day, and we we thought like, oh, we've always really enjoyed having people over. We've always done that really well. But over the course of the past year, we recognize we've had 72 unique individuals in our home in the past year. Seventy-two. Unique, Not duplicates, not triplicates, not quadruplicates. And we think that that might actually be a little bit low as we were kind of looking through everything and totaling things up and looking through the calendar and all that stuff. But 72, because that's something that we have that we can steward well in generosity for others. That we can create a home and a space and a place that is safe for others to gather together. To spend time getting to know one another. All the time. I mean, and it's, it's big things and it's small things. Like we had a, a giant birthday party for, for Tracy last year, a, a huge surprise party. We had, a, we had Thanksgiving dinner where people came that weren't a part of our church because we're opening our home left and right. We had Taylor over for the Notre Dame-Georgia game, which was awful because Notre Dame lost and Georgia won and she was super excited and she keeps rubbing my face in it. It's terrible. But wh- now is not the time to think of what we do not have. But to change our focus and begin to see the things that are right in front of us, what do we have that we can be creative and leveraging for the good of the kingdom? Our life, our life is measured by what we give. Our life is measured by what we give. He who dies with the most toys still dies. It is not about what we accumulate and amass by the end of our life, but by what we are giving away to create around us through this muscle of generosity. Cornell West put it this way. He said, In the end, your life will not be measured by what you have, but by the fruit you bear, by the life you live, and the kind of love you have. We have so much to share with our neighbors. We have so much to share with our friends. We have so much to share with the world around us. You have so much to share. You have so much to give, not just financially and not just materially, but with who you are. Oliver Wendell Holmes said said this about life. He said, many people will die with their music in them. Many people will die with their music in them. We not only paint the sky as a people, we create a beautiful symphony all around us as God's children, as God's people who live differently, who engage and interact with the kingdom around us differently. And we have this beautiful symphony that is dying to get out. Don't let your life be a music box that is never opened. Seattle's favorite adopted son, Dave Grohl, put it this way. He said, it's times like these you learn to live again. It's times like these you give and give again. It's times like these you learn to love again. We live in a time of rampant economic insecurity. We live in a time of rampant greed where the, the, the haves and the have-nots are being outpaced by everything. The gap in wealth is being extremely expanded over and over and over again. And here we are as a people, as a people, as a Children and people of God who are asked and called to give of who we are, to be a generous people over and over and over again, to give and give and give again. I believe that it is beyond time for us as a people. It is beyond time for us as a church to do some pretty provocative things in the name of love. It is time for us to do some pretty provocative things in the name of love, and I believe it begins with exercising this muscle of generosity all around us, of giving and giving and giving and creating a new imagination for what it looks like to participate in a kingdom economy, as opposed to the economy of the world around us. What does it look like for us to paint the sky? God, thank you for your son and for the ways in which he teaches us through the stories of, uh, the, stories of the Gospels and how he created these beautiful visual aids for us to see, uh, th- these beautiful stories that play out as he teaches us over and over what it looks like for us to be your children. Father as we enter into this space of giving and into this space of being a people of exercising a muscle of generosity may we show different may we be different than the world around us may we be different than our country may we be Christians that participate in a kingdom economy for you father challenge us push us and change us to be a generous people with one another with our neighbors with our city push us, and challenge us today. It's in your son's name that we pray all of these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.